0: Hello, my name is Grant and I'm Lead Pastor at New Song Church. Uh, Once again, it's just great to be able to come and be with you. Uh, Thanks for connecting and we're continuing through our series in the Gospel of Mark. So I hope you uh, are ready to continue this journey, this adventure. This is an amazing bit of the Bible. You know, we really purposely chose to go into Mark because of one main thing is that it focuses on Jesus and in these times Uh, We believe that this is the greatest thing that we could ever do is to really connect as as deeply as possible with Jesus and do that together. So uh, if you're joining us at 9 a.m. and are able to chat and things, that's just fantastic. If you're still on YouTube, I'd encourage you again to try out joining together at 9 o'clock and as we said, get those rhythms of life uh, into place, uh, hopefully in a healthy way and just have some community. Uh, I'm going to pray first and then then we're just going to dig in. Let's uh, go to the Lord together in prayer. Father, we simply ask that you would uh, open our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, uh, that we can love you and that we can receive your love. And then from there, we can go and love our neighbors. Uh, Lord, lift up uh, those who are weary, uh, those who are feeling shame, Lord, uh, that they may be unburdened of that and see uh, your incredible uh, love and forgiveness and grace. Um, Father, thank you for your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Does the name Hiru Onoda mean anything to you? Well, I wouldn't imagine that it does, but back in 1974, the name and the person attached to the name caused a great deal of interest. Almost 30 years after World War II had ended, uh, this gentleman, Hiru, a soldier from the Japanese Imperial Army, was finally convinced that the war was actually over and he laid down his weapons and stepped out of the Indonesian jungle. Here's how one report uh, puts it. Japan's past met its present four decades ago by a river in a rainforest on the island of Lubang. The encounter took place late in the tropical dusk of 20th of February, 1974, as the breeze died and the air grew thick with flying insects. Representing the present was a college dropout by the name of Norio Suzuki, 24 years old and clad in a t-shirt, dark blue trousers, socks, a pair of rubber sandals. He was stooping, making up a fire from a pile of twigs and branches, quite unaware that he was watched. The past, meanwhile, peered out from the cover of the jungle, wondering if the young man was some sort of trap. The man gazing from the forest fringe wore the remnants of an army uniform, and he carried a rifle. At the time of the encounter, he'd been hiding in the interior of Lubang for almost 30 years, steadfastly continuing to wage a war that had ended with Japan's surrender in Tokyo Bay on 2nd of September, 1945. It's a really, really fascinating story. I've linked uh, the article that I read in case you're interested. But this poor man was unaware, apparently, that the war had ended. His last orders had been to hold out until the end and never surrender and at the last resort to use the knife that he was still carrying when he was discovered to take his own life. He'd originally been with three other soldiers. They'd lived in a really rough kind of leaking shelter for a long time wearing these rotting uniforms. They survived on bananas and whatever they could steal. They actually shot several villagers in the area for fear of their position being found out and being betrayed. And they'd sabotaged food stores, kind of continuing the sabotaging action that they had done in the war. By the time Onoda, Onoda was found, one of his companions had actually long since surrendered, and two others had been shot by enraged farmers and the local police. It's interesting that this this man, Anora was not the only person who experienced this delay in realizing that the war was over. Actually, 127 stragglers came out of hiding between August 1947 and 1974 when this one of the last came out. So what has this got to do with the Gospel of Mark and the text that we're looking at today? Well, it is this. Mark tells us that in the coming of Jesus, All hostilities between human beings and God and between human beings and other human beings have been declared to be ended. A new era has begun, peace has been declared and celebration and joy are the appropriate responses to these times of reconciliation and friendship. The kingdom of God has overwhelmed the kingdom of darkness and the power of death and sin that were its primary forces. Peace has been proclaimed and accomplished in Christ between you and God, between you and me and every other person in creation. Yet many people still remain unconvinced about this reality. Their countless holdouts hiding in the shadows, continuing to strategize about how to win the war in anxiety and fear of being discovered and captured and punished, fighting on for their own personal cause or someone else's convinced of the righteousness of a dying ideal, unaware that hostilities have ended and peace has been accomplished and declared. So let's read this next text in our journey with Mark and see what we can understand about this. Mark chapter two, verses 18 to 22. You can look on the Bible tab if you're joining us at nine o'clock on Sunday uh, or otherwise you can check in your Bible and follow along. This is from the New International Version. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What is all that about, we ask ourselves? Well, the text begins with a question. Jesus is asked why his disciples are not fasting like the Pharisees, their disciples, those, their followers, and the disciples of John. The key to understanding uh, this question and the answer that Jesus gives uh, and the power and meaning of that, it comes in understanding somewhat the place of fasting in that time and place. So fasting, what's that all about? Well, in Israel at that time uh, and and in the times prior, uh, there was only one compulsory day of fasting and it was the Day of Atonement. Uh, when all of Israel would gather and they would repent of their national sins collectively. It was a time when the people would express kind of their longing for release from this just kind of continuing sin and the, and the guilt f- that comes from that. And they would seek to be forgiven and in and, and the hope that God would once again visit them. It was a time for sorrow and for repentance, for fasting, for sackcloth and ashes, Other than that, fasting might just simply be a voluntary act from those who wanted to be pious and then bring that as part of their religious practice as worshippers of God. A contemporary Jewish writer in Jesus' time explains this. That says about the Pharisees that as representatives of the most zealous Jewish religion, they are particularly strict in their fast. This was a big thing for the Pharisees. Uh, They would fast typically every Monday and every Thursday Pretty much just during daylight hours, they would fast. John's disciples' fasting was probably in line with John's call to repentance and be part of this, his, their commitment to this mission of announcing the coming kingdom of God. According to Jewish writings of the time, the same person uh, of the quote earlier, fasting was considered to be a, a really powerful act by this point. It was something profound. Uh, This person wrote that it forgives sins and heals diseases. It drives out spirits and has power even to the throne of God. It can get you to the throne of God. So Jesus' interrogators are asking him, why on earth would his followers not avail themselves of this amazing practice if they were all about faithfulness to God? So Jesus answers quite cryptically, it seems. First, he uses a metaphor of a wedding. And he, he talks about a wedding feast and the bridegroom and his guests and somehow that, that why would the guests at a wedding uh, with this bridegroom uh, do such a thing as fasting as understood in that day. Secondly, he uses two more analogies to answer the question. He seems to kind of perform an exercise in missing the point. They're asking about fasting and, and he's now talking about tailoring or clothing repair and winemaking. Well, there is one good connection here with the wedding idea because guests would typically wear new clothes to such an occasion of of celebration and wine would most likely be very plentiful at a wedding. But he talks about a patch on a piece of clothing. He says that to repair an old article of clothing, uh, you've got a hole in your in your you know first century chinos or whatever, right? And you get a new piece of cloth. He says that would be foolish because the old clothing has been washed and washed many times and has settled into its final shape. The new piece of cloth has not experienced that, and and it's going to shrink uh, after you wash the things together at a different rate, perhaps than the older cloth, causing more tearing, making the garment condition worse than it was in the beginning. Secondly, he talks about wine. Wine at that time was typically placed in animal skin containers. And it was actually a, a quite clever process because it was a stretching ability to this flexible skin And the fermentation process could somewhat continue in the skin. But once emptied, the old skins could dry out. And they could only really be used so many times before they would start to wear out. So you'd put new wine into an old skin. There would be pressure on the skin. And very likely, it would burst. And spilling all of your precious, hard-won liquid, this wine, all over the floor. So a question is asked, a very clear pointed question. Why don't your disciples fast like the Pharisees and John's disciples? And Jesus is seemingly given a very complex answer in return. What is he trying to tell these people? Surely a simple answer would have been sufficient. Well, on the face of this, the text seems to be all about fasting. A simple question. Jesus' inability to partly to answer the question. So perhaps we could have entitled this message today, Fasting for Christians 101. That could have been a good title perhaps. And it might have actually been quite helpful because we just began the season of Lent uh, which has been long associated with the concept of fasting. But there's much more to it than this. And this is kind of the point Mark wants to make. Uh, Mark takes us on a journey below and beneath the surface of religion into the deep, deepest places of human hearts and the heart of the God who loves us. What a glimpse, what a journey. Here, we are right in the middle of what we have heard is called the controversy dialogues. It's these five accounts that are are collected here together. Marcus skillfully grouped them into one little section uh, to tell us some things uh, that are important. You know, one of the things I love to do is when I'm reading scripture is to look for patterns. There's some very intentional patterns that you can find in scripture that can be very instructive when you try and to figure out what it's about. Charter Oak, uh, our Bible study that we meet with uh, folks from Charter Oak and, and others from New Song, uh, we do a lot of that. We like try and observe the passage and say, well, why is this here and why is this here and how does that connect? Well, one of the... Uh, the, the, the things about these controversy passages as they're very well structured and there's a very great deal of similarity between them. And really there's three movements uh, that occur in each of these five stories. And they tell us a great, about, a great deal about two things. Mark wants to tell us about two things here. One is about people. This is what it's really concerned about. About people, human beings like you and I, both time, from people from that time when Jesus spoke people who read Mark's writings people who heard it since then and then us today but also most and more importantly about Jesus so there's, there's these three movements the first one is that Mark sets the scene he always tells us uh, uh, this scene that he sets he, he tells us what's happening or perhaps geography and things like that uh, so the first of these stories was said a few days later when Jesus entered Capernaum the people heard that he had come home Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and some people came to Jesus. Uh, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. We're going to hear about that, that one next week. And then another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And it describes also the other people who were gathered there. So really these things are setting the scene in, in a particular way. They're telling us that Jesus is present and, and the people are present. Some people are there also. There's this connection happening. Um, so, so that's setting the scene. And then the second movement tells us more about people. It tells us about, Focus and focuses on people, and, and what, what is it about them that he focuses on? Well, typically in these stories, a question is asked in response to some apparently inappropriate behavior by Jesus and his crew. That's kind of the tension in the story. Jesus and his disciples, there's some critique of them, and a question is asked. Two weeks ago, uh, it's, uh, they said, only God can forgive sins. Who is this blaspheming man? Jesus. Last week, Josh talked about this. Why does he eat with sinners, was the question. This week, why are his disciples not fasting like the rest of us faithful Jewish people? And then next week and the following week really is, why are his disciples and Jesus breaking the Sabbath laws? And what does that tell us about people? I think it tells us that these people want to know the rules. They want to know how to get by. What are the rules to follow to be righteous in this culture, that, in that particular culture? The second thing that Mark tells us about people is there's a really clear progression in the way the questions are asked and, and the setting for that. If you notice this, the first story, it says that they are only pondering the question in their hearts. That's interesting. Interesting. They're not even asking the question. Uh, then they ask his disciples a question. They go to those associated with Jesus but not yet asking Jesus. And then thirdly, they ask Jesus directly in, in the central stories. Two times they come straight to him. Well then the last one, they don't even get to form the question. Jesus dr- addresses them directly with a question that he assumes they're going to ask and it says they remain silent. What does that tell us about people? It tells us that they're cautious. It tells us that they want to know, but they are really have a lot uh, invested in what the answer might be. And it, it also uh, tells us that perhaps we don't want to know the answer or we don't like the answer that we're perhaps given. So Mark's telling us about people in these contexts. It's more than just fasting. He's taking us beyond the surface into human hearts. The second thing, this third movement, it tells us very much about Jesus, although maybe at first glance, it is confusing and difficult to understand because Jesus doesn't seem to give a straightforward answer. The first uh, story, it said, Jesus said, the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Son of man, authority, doctors, healthy, sick. Then this week, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? No one stows a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. No one pours new wine into new wineskins, old wineskins. Come on, people. Then next time, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Jesus responds to this question with some sort of parable each time or some cryptic saying. And it seems designed to give a kind of a revelation, a hint, an understanding somehow about the kingdom of God, this kingdom that he alone is bringing to the world. So first thing we could ask about this is why does not he just give a simple answer to these questions? I was thinking about this this week and it occurred to me, this question, have you ever spoken to a scientist or someone who is really expert in their particular field, someone who's very narrowly an expert in something and who's studied for a long, long, long time knows all of the lingo and the jargon and the words and the concepts and the theories of the history of the their subject, etc. Right? And you ask them a question because you have some curiosity. You ask them a question and you're assuming or hoping that there'll be a simple answer, but it can, it's never like that because they you know all of these things about it, all of the parts, they're all the moving parts, and it's very hard for them sometimes just to give you a simple answer, even though they may want. To do so, I have to say that my dear friend Fuzz Rana, who's one of our elders at church, you know, we have elders meetings and sometimes, especially in the concept of the pandemic and vaccines, you know, sometimes we'll ask him a question and I can tell that his first thought is kind of, like, okay, how do I, how do I perhaps translate this into a way uh, that is going to be helpful and understandable? Because he knows a lot about it and he's constantly researching and trying to learn more. And I find often when you Ask people who are experts questions like that. They will come up with some kind of metaphor or analogy. Because those kind of things are useful for connecting. They can say something like, it's like this. If you imagine it like this, because they're trying to explain it to you without getting into all of the depth. But also what that does is tells you that there's more. And if you're interested in learning more, I'm sure they will be helpful, happy to guide you, or at least guide you in a direction where you could learn more. There's always deeper and further in. And I think this is really what is happening with Jesus. He's asked a simple question. They expect a surface answer. What What does religion teach us? What should we do? And he is talking in such a way that he is trying to give a connection of some form of meaning that is rich, that, that it actually increases their curiosity to want to know more so that they can start to create this fuller picture of the magnitude of who Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about. So let's look now at specifically... Uh, how Jesus replies to that question about fasting, having understood somewhat what's happening here, I hope. How does Jesus reply? He said, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as, they have taken, as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day, they will fast. What reason does he give for his people? not fasting, well think about the wedding. A wedding of that day was a wondrous affair. In fact, some have said it was the greatest moment of a person's life. And part of that reason was because there was such a lavish uh, elements to that celebration. It went on for actually for days. All work would be set aside. In fact, you were not allowed to fast during a wedding feast period of time. And it didn't really get more celebratory than that. And Jesus is comparing this moment in time somehow his disciples with him, his presence, him being the focal point, him, it seems to be the bridegroom here with a wedding and trying to make them understand that in the same way, there's there's a quality here of that. And perhaps they would be understanding somewhat that this, that throughout the entire Old Testament, God has been described in sometimes as a husband to a bride that was the people of God and even as a bridegroom. In Isaiah 62, it says, with the joy of a bridegroom because of his bride, so your God will rejoice because of you. It's all about him. That is what determines the behavior of his disciples. That's the first thing is like, they're with me. This is not about a rule or a regulation. This is about a relationship. And I am the one on whom they are dependent for what is the quality of their life right now. And therefore what it is that they will be doing. You know, it's not that Jesus is saying that fasting is no longer something that faithful people will do. That's not the point. It's that actually the reasons for which people would fast are no longer true. All the fasting that came before was all about a longing for God to come, for forgiveness to be real, for this uh, unburdening of this weight of guilt and shame and sin to be relieved. And now Jesus is saying that while he is with the people, there is no place for this form of fasting all the fasting that had gone on for generations before was leading up to this point and it was all worthwhile. But now the response had come and there was no longer a need for something that was, not, that was no longer a present reality. The king of the kingdom had come. So what about the cloth and the wine? Well, Jesus is simply wanting them to understand that the past has passed away, that the new was here though what they had longed for was actually present, though veiled and hard to understand, was actually now with them. God had come to rescue his people and he was here. And you cannot mix the old ways with the new. You have to understand and take your cue and understanding from the king of the kingdom who will teach you, as he did in the Sermon on the Mount, what this new means, the way of being human is all about. Mark is showing us through this gospel that Jesus announced the peace, that Jesus lived the peace, Jesus accomplished the peace, Jesus maintains the peace, Jesus invites all into the reality of this peace, and he finalizes the peace forever. With Jesus' bringing of the kingdom, everything has changed, and it can never be halted, reverted, reverted or diminish and the response to this revelation and this presence is not one of sackcloth and ashes of despair and longing uh, unfulfilled but of joy of celebration of hopefulness of community so the question i think uh, occurs perhaps why then is it so hard for us to live in the light of this freedom and peace. If peace has been declared between God and humans and between human beings and one another, why is it so often so hard? And why do wars still rage and neighbors don't get along? And church people don't love one another as they even want to. And we have all of this disunity uh, and squabbling and bickering and bitterness and brokenness. Well, I think there are some reasons here. You know, Basically, fundamentally, we are human beings. But the first thing I want to say is old habits die hard. Old habits die hard. I mean, that's really the truth of the story. For, for Why aren't you fasting with us? The, in, in that question lies the fact that we've always done it like this. And these people were steeped in a religious uh, way that may have started with a really uh, heartfelt, honest giving of the law, but it in many ways degraded into simply outward appearance and form. The one other time really Jesus mentions fasting is to say when you fast... Supposing that you would still, don't do things to make yourself look bedraggled so that people know you're fasting and think you're also holy. He says, do it in secret. Keep your appearance good, so then God in heaven will know that you're doing this. Old habits die hard. You know, I can explain this perhaps by this by this thought. I've been trying to learn Spanish. You know, I'm on like week five of my one-hour lesson every Saturday. And way back in the distant land of, of mid ni- the mid-1980s, I was in high school, uh, I was a student in high school, and, and going to high school there around the age of 12 or 13, you started to learn languages. And there were three choices uh, in Scotland at the time. There was French, there was Spanish, and there was German. However, every single kid had to start with French. You had to start with the French language. Uh, I'm not really sure why, but that, that was a starting point. Uh, And then if you did well at French and and chose to, you could take one or both of the other languages. And I did not do well in French at all um, until my parents sent me off to a farm for an entire summer. I guess I must have been about... 15 or 16, they sent me to a farm uh, through a connection that they had where practically no one spoke any English. And I can tell you, I learned French pretty quick. When I came back, I was pretty much fluent. Uh, despite this, uh, being I came back and aced my exams. I didn't really want to learn Spanish at the time. Actually, all I really wanted to do was hang out with my friends and play my guitar as loudly as possible. Um, but recently, I thought it was important to me to love my neighbors well to, to try and learn Spanish. So I've been participating every Saturday for an hour with our fear, fearless leader, Angela, uh, with and some other students online on Zoom learning Spanish. But one thing that's become really obvious to me is that rather than being a benefit for my new learning, having this French in me, and, and this, this is the other language I've ever known, is a real obstacle. Whenever I try and think of a word, or even pronouncing certain Spanish words, I go quickly to the, to the French way or the French pronunciation. Uh, and even though it was a long, long time ago, Uh, The lessons I learned in French are still, it's the language that is most familiar to me after English. Uh, These thoughts and ideas come automatically to me. And I think similarly, we should not be surprised when we struggle to maintain the language of the kingdom, a sense of peace and joy amidst all the constant reminders, both in ourselves and outside of ourselves, of our mortality, our weakness, and like the patterns, the, you know, the uh, dict- diction and the uh, vocabulary of a non-surrendered life to the kingdom. You know, for my Spanish progress, I think I've realized what's really missing. I need to spend more time with people who speak Spanish and not French or English. I need to spend more time with native speakers. In particular, that, uh, that's, that's going to be the same with the kingdom of God. I need to spend more time with those who uh, speak the language of the kingdom. Fluently, And not only in the words, but in their lives. I need the community to do that with. And in particular, I need to spend more time with the one who will speak the language of the kingdom of God to me every day if I will listen. But it is hard. And old habits die hard. But we are called to recognize that the kingdom is indeed here. Second thing, the discipleship road is hard. I mentioned the other day about that saying by G.K. Chesterton that Christianity has not been tried and found lacking, but it's been found to be hard and left untried. The discipleship road is hard and there are easier ways on offer. C.S. Lewis, uh, whose book uh, some of us are studying, uh, Screwtake Letters on Sunday evenings, uh, wrote this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And I think that's often it. We, we want quick answers, we want quick fixes, we want religion, we want rules. The questions, the questions that have been asked by these people of Jesus are, are, are reflect this need for clarity, for rules, for control, and Jesus will not give it. This is what discipleship is. It's, it's a patient pressing in and continuing, I will not step back, I will not hold back, I will continue to follow you and trust you and, and learn from you. It's about a relationship. The third thing that makes it hard is it's not all a bowl of celebration, the wedding image, I'm, I'm so glad that this is in here because Jesus doesn't say when the bridegroom is here because we know the Holy Spirit is, the, is Christ with us so this continues on. Um, he doesn't just say that they, they don't fast anymore, there's no time for this sorrow. He actually gives a hint of that in this very same uh, re- response. He says... But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. This, this is a hint of a violent thing to come and a sorrow to come. Uh, fasting will be very appropriate. Not just the bridegroom will leave them, but will be taken from them. He's hinting at something to come that is gonna be difficult and painful. And I think this is similar for us. This journey that we are on with the with the bridegroom as the bride as the church as his people having had peace declared to us and our current present possession are going to experience loss both the loss of the of the kingdom that we knew that we trusted in but also uh, just loss as we go because part of this is to participate in the sufferings of Christ we take up our cross daily we follow him and there's, there's a longing still in this era for rescue because it's not fully done yet. We talk about the now and not yet that Christ has conquered, but yet we await for that full revelation, that full realization and presence and power. So we live in this time of now and not yet and we have this longing for our ultimate salvation and it causes us uh, to struggle. So let's think back to this gentleman who came out of the woods in uh, the jungle in 1974, Hiru Onoda. And he was found by a young Japanese college dropout by the name of Norio Suzuki. And this is actually how the soldier who'd been still fighting the war for almost 30 years in his ragged uniform with his rusting weapons described the meeting with his discoverer. So uh, the soldier sees Norio, that's what he says. Norio stood up and turned around. His eyes were round. He faced me and saluted. Then he saluted again. His hands were trembling and I would have sworn his knees were too. Remember, this soldier had shot people fairly recently. He asked, are you an Oda-san? Yes, I'm an Oda. Really? Lieutenant Onoda? I nodded and he went on. I know you've had a long, hard time. The war is over. Won't you come back to Japan with me? His use of polite Japanese expressions convinced me that he must have been brought up in Japan, but he was rushing things too much. Did he think he could just make the simple statement that the war was over and I would go running back to Japan with him? After all those years, it made me angry. No, I won't go back. For me, the war hasn't ended. But he did, he changed his mind and he realized he was actually only convinced when one of the commanding officers who was still alive uh, was able to contact him and tell him that the war was officially over. And then he believed this man and he officially surrendered and he went back to Japan. And actually he found Japan to be a difficult place to live after that because so much had changed. He ended up settling in Brazil. There's so much more to his story but the question I think today is ask ourselves, do, do you need to surrender today to this kingdom? Do you need to recognize and realize that the war you have been fighting is no longer to be fought? That victory has come, that the kingdom has come, that the king of the kingdom has come and all the other kingdoms are passing away. Like Onidasan. san Have you been surviving on whatever you can eke out for survival, hiding from your neighbors, competing with them for whatever you need, always restless, always suspicious, exhausted, wearing the filthy, rotten uniform of your former allegiances, carrying rusted, failing weapons? And there's an invitation to put on clean new clothes and to celebrate with the bridegroom this incredible kingdom that has come with the wine, the goodness of the Holy Spirit in power, in freedom. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it, as translated from the Greek by Eugene Peterson It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old stagnant life of sin. You let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it. All of us were doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it. All of us in the same boat. It's a wonder God didn't lose his temper and do away with a whole lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin dead lives and made us alive in Christ. He did this all on his own with no help from us. Then he picked us up and set us down in highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace and that was the end of the hostility Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. Peace in 1945 came at a dreadful cost, an unspeakable devastation and loss of life. There was nothing moral about that, despite it leading perhaps to a form of peace which in the intervening years we've seen destroyed and ruined again and again and again and again with more to be promised. The bombs dropped on Nagasaki and Hiroshima. The peace that is ours came at a great cost also. Yet it was the one whom we had made our enemy who himself made himself the ultimate sacrifice for us. He made peace with his blood and broken body. And he himself sought us out and called us to come celebrate with him. Let's pray. Lord, do your work in us. May we hear your voice as you call us by name to lay down our weapons, to raise our hands in surrender, to confess that you are Lord and to step into this life that you have set before our feet. Not depending on any kind of precondition of what it might look like, but trusting that you have done it, you will do it. For you are the King. Praise God that the war is over. Praise God that there is peace. As promised by the angels, although we encounter so much trouble here, you have offered your peace to us and we receive it gladly. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to invite you to come join us in the lobby after the experience today, if you're watching at nine o'clock, come join us. We need you. And I think we need each other. We need each other. And I think the story of this young student who dropped out of college and and went to find this person who people had long since given up up finding, was he'd actually been declared to be dead a long time prior to this young man finding him is is beautiful. And there's a lot more to the story. We're gonna talk about that in the lobby. I'd encourage you to come, come hear about that. Also, we can chat about fasting. There's a lot that we can talk about and just have a general catching up with one another, chance to share life, chance to pray Uh, We're going to be back together again, I know, in the not-too-distant future. But while we can, we don't know if we have tomorrow. We don't know if we have next week or a month. And and just simply waiting for something to change is not what it's about. Christ is here present today, and this is an opportunity for us to step into that as brothers and sisters of all different places in our belief, our understanding, and all of those things. But we're all going to do this together. And so I hope to see you there. God bless you. Take care.